0: to why we do what we do i will be your spooky host abraham and i will be your comic relief from all the spookiness shane
1: awesome and so we are in our second i think episode of our halloween series this year or our episodes themed around sort of spooky topics which is our celebration and our love of the month of october basically
0: Yes. It's not a surprise that we, especially when you listen to some of the episodes that we like some of the, we have some dark humor and we appreciate some of those things. When you get to know us a little bit more, you'll learn that we love, you know, different types of metal and things that would go along with spookiness. So like, it just kind of, it all, it's just, it's part of the package. So welcome to just a kind of an ongoing hobby of ours. Really
1: different types of metal. Like Shane is a huge fan of copper. I'm a, i am like steel.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like copper and steel, maybe a little bit of zinc in there.
1: Yeah. Mercury. The good ones. The heavier
0: ones. Yeah, the heavier metals. For sure. <laughs> yeah, lead is really cool for that. <laughs> we did an episode on lead. We did. You know, we cover a lot of stuff here, but I think going back to the idea, like, spookiness is really where we have a lot of fun. Like, we have fun on those episodes, but this is where we, like, we get really creative and have a lot, just a blast with all the, all the weird spooky psychology that's out there.
1: That's right. Now, before we begin, I want to do a quick call-out sort of thing. Which is that if you, are, if you enjoy our series, if you'd like to support the show in any way, you can join us on Patreon. Join us for as little or as long as you like. That's a way you can donate. And when you do, you get access to certain things like early releases. You can get access to bonus episodes, uncut episodes, stuff like that. If you don't want to support us that way, you can always support us by leaving us a rating and or a review. You might have to leave a rating if you leave a review. But a rating and a review... And another place that we can, you can reach us is we now have a subreddit page. So we'll link that in the show notes for this episode as well.
0: Yeah. That's going to be a lot of fun. So we'll be able to share some resources and stuff on that and just, you know, talk shop a little bit, I think. Absolutely.
1: So getting back on topic, this is one of my favorite types of year. We actually discussed doing this episode last year and I remembered because I cast a
0: spell that gave me the memory I needed. (laughs) Yeah, you you didn't have to use a remember-all from Harry Potter, which is a different kind of witch.
1: Yes, which is to say, which is to say, (laughs) we we are talking about witches. Yes, so stoked. Specifically about the,
0: the witch trials. We wanted to tackle this because, you know, I think that there is some important psychological process that goes along with calling somebody a witch and then burning them at the stake or throwing them into a river. Like, I feel like it's worth noting why somebody would do something so horrific.
1: Yes. And part of this is also going to be talking about witch hunts, which is importantly related to the witch trials, because the witch hunt is something that very much still exists in very different forms, at least... And the themes and the strategies that are employed in a witch
0: hunt. Yeah, and so we're going to try to tackle that, but we've got a little introduction before we get into all that fun stuff.
1: Okay, so this is from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And picture a scene where you are in this medieval style town. And a group of peasants who are wearing mostly rags and covered in dirt bring a woman up to a stage where there is a man who is trying to tie coconut to a bird. For reasons related to the beginning of the movie. But anyway, they're yelling that she's a witch, and they carry her and place her in front of the man who looks like he's some authority figure in the town. And she says, I'm not a witch. But then he says, Uh, eh, but you're dressed as one. And she says, They dressed me up like this. The crowd says, Nah, no, we didn't know.
0: And then she says, This isn't even my nose, it's a false one. And then he lifts the carrot up and it's tied to the woman's face. And then the crowd says well, we did do the nose. And the man says, the nose. And he goes, and the hat. But she's a witch! And the Burn crowd her! shouts, Burn her! yes, she's
1: a witch. So the man asks the crowd, did you dress her up like this?
0: And the crowd goes, no, 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 yes, yeah, yeah a little bit, a little bit, yeah, but she's got a wart!
1: <laughs> yeah. They're like, no, no, y- yeah, a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really good. So, And then the, the scene goes on with them talking about how to determine if she is a witch he says, you know, we can't just accuse her. There are ways of figuring these things out. And he talks through the rationale that witches burn because they're made of wood. Wood floats in water. What else floats in water? And they list <laughs> several <laughs> things like small pebbles and like more wood, things like that. And then when, I think it's King Arthur shows up and he says, a duck. And then the man <laughs> says, exactly. <laughs> like that's the most... The accurate answer that you can get and so they basically reason that if she weighs the same as a duck then she must be a witch so they put her in a giant scale she does in fact weigh the same as a duck so she must be a witch
0: <laughs> it is one of the most brilliant scenes like if you if just a holy grail in general is just just like scene after scene of pure brilliance
1: it does have just amazing comedic timing and brilliant little like subtle things built into the whole discussion that's just perfect. So that's a
0: great setup for the witch hunts. <laughs> yeah. So while the idea of witches is exceptionally old, this is something that goes back centuries. Horace's satires already embracing the negative stereotype circa 35 BC to current day, there's just there's so much going on, but the satire actually describes witches with wigs and false teeth howling over dead animals. So we see this kind of recurrent theme of witches throughout human history, which is pretty neat.
1: Yeah. And that that summary you just gave is quoted from the magazine, I guess, The Atlantic. And there's sort of a mix of different sources I looked at. And there was a book specifically called Cows, Pigs, Wars, and Witches. And that's by Marvin Harris. And in the latter sections of the book, he talks about essentially the history of witchcraft. And so a lot of what we pull comes from that. Now, we pulled from a lot of different sources, and they're all kind of mixed together, but that was one of the main sources. One thing to know about witches is that there's a misconception that everybody who was accused of practicing witchcraft was a woman. Now, it's true that most of them were women. About 80% were women, but the remaining 20%, obviously, in that case, then, were men.
0: Right, and they were, were they witches or were they warlocks?
1: I actually don't know if they specified what to call them they may have just said they were charged with practicing witchcraft and then it didn't matter what title was applied to them at that point i'm not sure
0: okay yeah that makes sense so within that demographic though it was commonly described that the devil is particularly influential over women and that's why we're they were mainly the accused now if you look at any historical texts humanity has not been great to women so this is just kind of like another you know, notch on the belt, I guess, when it comes to how women were treated. And just, of course, the devil, it's the devil's fault.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was, there was lots of precedent in various texts and culture that particularly among these European, as we'll see, most of this took place in Europe, at least with respect to what we're going to cover today, because there definitely are instances of sort of shamans and, and mystics that have been in other cultures, but we're talking particularly around the witch trials, which is, mostly a European phenomenon, at least the way that it's written in these sources. And in those cultures, women have traditionally had pretty low status, have often been vilified as inherently evil just because they're women and for no other reason. And so something to keep in mind. Now, during this time, when we're talking about the witchcraft here, right back at this point, even as early as this was going on, women were accused of mounting broomsticks and flying through the air and covering great distances. And the reason that they were supposed to do this is so that they could specifically meet with the devil. And these gatherings were called sabbats or sabbats, maybe. Sabbats kind of makes sense because that's similar to sabbath. Yeah. And so that was that trope of the idea of witches riding broomsticks comes from this. And why broomsticks? Well, hard to say, but partially, potentially because of the phallic shape of broomsticks may have been one of the reasons that they decided that that was their tool of flight. I think the other is that a lot of times the women who were accused were at a station in life where they'd be doing a lot of cleaning, so that was a readily accessible tool, but that was sort of the myth of the broomsticks.
0: Yeah, and it was also reported that women would copulate with incubi, not the band incubus, incubi or plural for incubus, but the male devil or male dream demon with ice penises. So this was something that was commonly accused of women at the time.
1: And Part of this again, this there's sort of some built in chauvinism here, but this is sort of the idea that these women often many of them were married, that they were treacherous because they were engaging in adultery by doing this, and it was particularly insulting to their husband because they were copulating with a devil who had ice for a penis. So
0: It sounds very uncomfortable. Yeah. So while women were copulating with incubi, men would also copulate with succubi, which were the female sleep demons or the female devils that would come in and sleep with you in your dreams. You had incubi and succubi that were both available to folks in that process.
1: No mention that I saw of the relative temperature of the genitals of the female devils, just the male devils with their, their ice penises. (laughs) Now, useful to know that around this time and bringing up some of the context for this is that a lot of different towns and villages and cities and whatnot, it was actually very common for these places to have these sort of shamans or wise men. Healers were often lumped in the same group as this. As I had mentioned earlier, you have sort of these mystics. And essentially, these were any people who were had some kind of, I don't know if authority is the right word, but people went to them but they were not an authority that was officially the church. And that's a really important distinction.
0: Right. Like the fact that there was that that did exist, and here we are, you know, accusing folks of doing something that's similar enough, but different enough that, you know, they can still be put to death for it.
1: Right. And there seems to be evidence that these people practicing witchcraft, that it worked, at least it seemed that way.
0: To the degree, like, you know, which gave Queen Elizabeth the ring to protect her from the plague, and here we are.
1: And she never got the plague. So, hmm. success. Curious. Right. And then people would be seeking these wise men for many different things. Even royalty would sometimes. And they would seek them to predict events, such as predicting the future about things like armies invading, natural disasters, those sorts of things. They also would approach these wise people, these shamans, to heal wounds. They would approach them to solve different problems they had financially, financially. Or otherwise, you know, there are lots of reasons that someone basically felt that they needed help. They didn't go necessarily to the church, but instead would go to these sort of wise person figures to ask them to help solve their problems. And the way that they solve these problems would be through what might look like mystical means. They might perform rituals. They might say chants or prayers. They might draw specific symbols. They might even do things that were just normal science, like using herbs and bandages yeah, And now what's important is, of course, back then there was very little known about medicine for most people. Also very little known in particular about diseases and bacteria and infections and, and viruses and things like that. So what might happen is that someone might also go to a healer because they were sick, for instance, or they had some specific ailment, maybe even like a, a broken limb. And the healer might do something to them. And then that person then later dies Presumably of their wound or dies, quote unquote, mysteriously. And in this case, then it looks like that healer did something nefarious to cause that person to die, which they might have done, but they also might not have.
0: And to be fair, like it wasn't a stretch when you look at some of the medical treatments that were available at the time. Like we've talked about the Black Plague a few times on here, but like the fact that they would use like a tincture made of mud and human feces and rub that into a wound to treat it. Doctors or self-proclaimed doctors would do that, but the witches were the ones that were causing the problems.
1: Well, and there was also the idea of these humors in the body and that the way to improve sickness was to bleed people. And so they would cut them or make incisions and literally drain them of their blood. And that was the best medical, like technical advice that was around for a while for many of these people. And so what might happen is these people would go to the doctor, the doctor with every good intention, would bleed them dry, and that person then would die from anemia, probably, or something like that. (laughs) And then they would blame the healer, and yeah, the healer did it in this case. But also what might have happened is that the healer gave them something, and that person was going to die anyway because they had a bacterial infection and maybe even got into the blood, and so that would kill someone relatively quickly, and then it would look like the healer's fault, even though the healer just, what they had done wrong, if you will, is that they didn't know how to stop that infection from killing that person.
0: Right, which is just, you know, we need more science back then. Yes, there was definitely, definitely too little science back then. <laughs> As opposed to today, which everybody believes in it so much. Exactly, yeah, we're we're
1: done with all the mysticism. <sighs> I wish. Something else to talk about here is that there were these people who were writing about witchcraft and witches a lot, and one of them was named Jean Baudin. He wrote about witches and demonology, and he specifically wrote this in a language that was really readily accessible to a lot of people because at the time a lot of religious texts and other things were written exclusively in Latin and it part of the reason was because it was specifically meant to be withheld from the general public it was meant to preserve both the what they considered to be a more pure form of the text as well as have it be That it could not be interpreted by lay folk, only people that could interpret it into the language that they were used to speaking and reading was by a church official who would then say, this is what it says and this is what it means, rather than other people being able to read it and interpret it for themselves. Jean Bodin wrote about demonology and witches in a language that was easily accessible to all people, which meant that the idea of witches became much more widespread.
0: Right. And so then you have that. And then you also have like the folks that are in power who are using texts like the Bible to specifically call out people who identify as witches or like who they could identify as witches. So like in Exodus twenty two eighteen, the quote of thou shalt not suffer a witch to live can be interpreted as pretty heavily in terms of like what's actionable about that and people were pretty influenced by religious texts and so here we are like now we've got witches can't live and with the rise of witchcraft and the fact that witches can't live it kind of creates this like strange culture of us versus them and then people getting murdered what's really
1: important to begin discussing here is the the kind of people who were likely to be targeted by accusations of witchcraft. And one of them was this group of people who were called in nurses or maybe living in nurses. And these are people who you might think of as, They're kind of like doulas in a way in that they were there to help women through pregnancy, delivering birth, helping to care for an infant, dealing with postpartum depression. And so these were often women who were older. They may have been women who have already had kids, might be women who have gone through menopause that sort of thing. But either way, they were dealing with really vulnerable populations at a time when, again, our medicine was severely lacking. And it's very possible a good chunk of these women were illiterate anyway and didn't have any specific training, but were nevertheless trusted with these children. And just by, I mean, just the natural order of things meant that about 50% of all infants were dying, which, I mean, that's a huge amount. That's half. You know, for every two kids you had, one of them wasn't going to make it past the first year, a couple of years of life. And most of the ones that died, died in that first year immediately as infants. And so what happened was you had these nurses who were helping these families, usually wealthier families, because they could afford to have people around like this. And they would have a child. The woman would do the best to take care of that child. That child would die because that nobody knew anything about medicine. And then they would accuse that woman of being a witch and having killed that child. So these were populations of women who were, Trying to be helpful and were, but were vulnerable to accusations and attacks by coincidentally being around things that were just gonna happen.
0: And to be fair, that was happening pretty commonly, but also you ran the risk of being accused as a witch if you were just a woman in general. Like, for example, women who have gone through menopause were often accused, and there was you know, some health implications with that and, and, and all the things that go along with menopause, but because people didn't understand that, it was like, oh, well, you're no longer menstruating, and also you are having hot flashes. That must be the devil. And so then things like that would happen, and people would get accused just for simply going through biological processes.
1: Yeah, there were quite a few silly <laughs> things that were used, I guess, as evidence, if you will.
0: So in Europe, in 1000, the Catholic Church effectively condemned the idea of witchcraft. So it was illegal to believe that it was real. So there's a book called Canon Episcopi, which basically stated that if you believed it, you had no faith in God.
1: Yeah, and it being witchcraft in this case. And so for a few hundred years, about like 400 years, almost 500 years, the Catholic Church was basically saying that if you said witchcraft was real, you were going against God. And it's sort of... I think more aligned with sort of what religion has said now, because there was definitely when Harry Potter was coming out, there were some religious organizations condemning Harry Potter saying, you're promoting this idea that there's witchcraft, that's not real, that's against God. And that was essentially what the position was of the church back at that point. Now, several things, however, changed over those 400 years, almost 500 years. And by 1480, it was basically illegal not to believe in witchcraft. So whereas it had been illegal before, it was now illegal to not believe in witchcraft and to believe other than witchcraft meant that you yourself were in league with the devil. And that's why you would claim to not believe in witchcraft because you were trying to subvert those people who were authorities of the church and trying to root out these evil witchcraft wielding shenanigans. And so this led to the sort of inquisition about witches and the witch trials. So there was this about 400 year period from roughly around, you know, before the year 1300 to the year 1700, where these inquisitions, these investigations into witchcraft were conducted. And this resulted in the torture and killing of thousands and thousands of women. The conservative estimate. Puts it at fifty to 60,000 women killed, but some more extreme estimates place that number as high as the hundreds of thousands. So this is a lot of people that were subjected to this, which is really, really sad.
0: This is not like a, what I would imagine to be a high period for the church in history. Like they're probably not very fond of this time, I would imagine, because it's so horrific. Yes. Yeah, exactly right. During this time, people were being tortured. And what they basically would do is they would deprive them of sleep. They would use something called strapado, which were hands bound behind your back. And then you were hung in the air by your hands with weights that were attached to you. So basically you end up dislocating your shoulders and tearing everything in your shoulders and your torso and all that, which is really awful. Yeah. They would use thumbscrews, the rack, and otherwise they would also burn people at the stake, stab, poke, prod, starve, beat and basically just tear people apart. So, I mean, we could do an entire episode on torture, but this isn't a true crime podcast and uh, the torture methods are horrific during that time. Human beings are unfortunately creative when it comes to harming others. These were horrific
1: scenes. There's some artist depictions of what some of this looked like and even though they're pretty crude, it's horrifying to look at and just reading through the list, if I mean, you just can't imagine how horrific it must have been for these women who generally did nothing and were oftentimes trying to help people and then would be tortured practically to death or tortured to death in some cases. So again, spooky because not it's not actually the witches who are spooky here. It is the accusers in this case. Yeah, it's the realism that makes it scary. And now, why are they torturing these people? Well, they're torturing them basically for to try and get three outcomes or they would torture them with three outcomes that would generally occur. One they would confess to practicing in witchcraft, to being in league with the devil, and being guilty of all the things for which they were being charged. That was one of the outcomes that might happen. Two, they would name other people that also participated with them. They, basically, the rationale being, if you are engaging with cr- witchcraft, then you've seen other people in your community there also, because there's got to be more than just you. Who else is doing this? And so they'd get them to name names. And three, they died from their, the wounds from torture. Basically, nobody was investigated and then were later said, oh, you must not be a witch. You passed our investigation. If you were accused, that was basically it for you. It was
0: a death sentence, pretty much. I mean, yes. And there are stories of people who, while being tortured, confessed to their accused crimes and made to name others. But if they didn't confess, they would be tortured until they died. And if they did confess, they would be killed for witchcraft. So, again, like like that's what it just came down to. Everybody died. Like the minute that you got accused, that was it. And so, unfortunately, the suspects would often recant a confession after torture and explain that they were only saying those things to end the torture. So accusers would then start torturing again to confirm the original confession. So they would confess, they would take it back, and then they would get tortured again just to get the confession back. Right. So it was this horrific cycle of events that essentially, like we said, like if you were accused, that was pretty much a death sentence for you or people that you knew.
1: And you got to imagine if someone was saying, let's just say Shane, for example, they're like, Shane, I know you are secretly a unicorn, and I'm going to beat that out of you. And so they torture you, they starve you, they dislocate your shoulders, they stick screws into your thumbs. And after it's only so much pain, probably not very much, you know, you're saying, okay, yes, I'm a unicorn. I admit it, I'm a unicorn. And instead of they stop, you're like, listen, guys, I'm not a unicorn. I really needed you to stop sticking screws in my thumbs because that was the worst. And they're like, yup, yep, back to the screws. And you're like, okay, yes, I admit it. I was a unicorn. I was lying before. And that's why this is, it's so useless to like rely on torture as a means of getting information because people will say anything, they will do anything to make that stop, and understandably,
0: right. And then at the end of the day, like, so I go, I'm a unicorn, and then I take it back, and then I'm like, I'm a unicorn again, and they're like, okay, well, you know, in this country, we kill unicorns. It's like, well, ah, like it's a lose lose situation. Like you don't get, like it's not a, it's not fair.
1: And yeah, so they basically go through that cycle of torturing and getting confirmation of their guilt. And that would go on until they had someone newly accused, because again, that was one of the main goals is to get new people to go after. And often people who simply sprang to the mind of the suspect were the most likely to be the next accused. So it might be neighbors. It might be someone that, was, that they just in- interacted with recently. So it was just kind of anybody, anybody who popped into their mind.
0: Right, and some of these free confessions, or like the confessions that would come freely without torture or anything, were most likely under the threat of torture. So like they would say like, oh, well they freely admitted it, there's probably something else going on. And the few that this wasn't the case, there were probably some folks that were mentally ill, that they decided not to torture or kill, or they couldn't get a confession out of, or they just let go because they just realized they were like maybe sick and they weren't witches.
1: Now here's where this gets particularly gross, in my opinion, is you gotta imagine... When people, they've taken up the mantle of witch hunter, if you will, and they're out there on the road going village to village or town to town or city to city, whatever it is they're doing, and they're searching for these witches, they have to eat, they presumably have to make some money to support their family, they are going to have to buy clothes and supplies and that sort of thing. Well, how is this being funded? Because you've got people who are basically carrying out labor, and as we'll see, carrying out labor for an organization most of the time. They're carrying out labor, and that means that they need to get paid. And so what they did is they would require the families of the suspects, the people that they would torture and kill, they would make their families pay for their quote-unquote services. So because they were doing the accusing, they're like, we're offering the service of identifying which is the family of the person who they tortured were required to pay The accusers and executioners. And they then would have a banquet for the loved one who was killed, who they also were required to pay for. So it was like you take these poor families who have nothing, torture one of their family members to death, and then make them pay for it and then make them pay to celebrate it. And furthermore, because they were witches, oftentimes these officials, these inquisitors, they would use that as an opportunity to seize the property and estates of the suspects. For themselves. So then the accusers, the inquisitors here, would be able to acquire property and acquire valuable assets, I guess, and they would just take it for themselves. I mean, this was like the pillaging during wars and raids and stuff that was going on, but that was being fully sanctioned.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is, <laughs> I don't want to say capitalism at its worst, but definitely one of the ugliest faces of capitalism like it it is somebody like earning money and gaining money at the on the backs of somebody else and then also gaining a punch of property and stuff like but i also feel like if i was an inquisitor and i did accuse somebody why would i want the property of a witch like wouldn't that be tainted ground i mean if you believed in what you were doing then probably yeah yeah that's fair i imagine that most people were just like oh this is a good this is a good get rich quick scheme
1: Now, something we didn't mention before is why the church made the switch from not believing in witchcraft to believing in witchcraft. It's not 100% clear, but the evidence seems to point to the oldest, probably most cliche reason that you can think of, which is money. And specifically what was happening is that in the 1200s, ecclesiastical religions, independent of the Catholic church, were beginning to emerge, which meant that. This began interrupting tithing and sacraments that the church depended on. So that is to say, people were going to the regular Catholic church, and they would make their donations. The donations were primarily what funded the church and the clergy and, or any power that the church wielded. But these separate religious groups began developing that were outside of that, and then the people would join those separate ecclesiastical religions, and they would pay their tax to them instead. And so the Catholic Church had been enjoying centuries of exclusive rights to these tithes. You could think of as like a faith tax. But when people started going to these other churches, that meant that that disrupted the flow of income to the Catholic Church.
0: Right. So then it makes sense that they would find some other form of you know income somewhere. Well,
1: and to basically squash their opponents was largely it. And so basically, they
0: deemed those groups that were not the part of the Catholic Church as heretical. So that's when they formed the Inquisition. They formed the Inquisition to snuff out these heretical groups. And what ends up happening is they push them into clandestine operations. So the Inquisition sought and received approval to torture those suspected of participation in these groups or these organizations to confess their participation in the names or name the names of others in their organization. So, ah, sounded a little bit sketchy. Right. So now you get this like special ops church group that's walking around torturing people and they're getting names. And now they're taking out enemies. It's very um, I don't want to name any groups because we'll get put on that list. But it just seems very familiar. Get
1: put on the list of people to get accused by the Inquisition.
0: Yeah. I don't want to be accused.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, basically, there's so many double edged swords here going on. It's just like a saw blade because you got to imagine these groups formed. They were deemed heretical by the church. They were basically threatened and tortured and it became dangerous to participate in those groups, but people had then invested their faith time, money and their belief in those new systems. So that meant that they went underground that made them then actually look more suspect because it looked like they were hiding what they were doing, which then just confirmed the church's position that they were doing things that were heretical because if they were divine, then they should be protected. They would have the rights to do those things, but they clearly weren't because they had to be in hiding, but they were forced there by the church in the first place. And so then they, they started trying to root them out. And so it was, you see the early precursors to what would become hunting for different types of heresy. So they eventually were able to squash quite a few of these, but then they had this, this group of people who were these inquisitors who had like, they had power, they had practice, they had the skill in doing this. And the inquisitors eventually argued that new kinds of witches had emerged. And so previously when the the church had said witchcraft wasn't real and now the church was basically flipping their position. They're sort of saying, well, these witches are different from before because they're real and they're this new thing. And so they pose an even more substantial threat to Catholicism than those heretical sects had been. And so the inquisitors were able to secure the blessing of Pope Alexander the Fourth to launch a full inquisition against witchcraft throughout Germany. So what's really
0: crazy is that this new kind of witch was entirely funded by George Soros. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's, it's funny how that's carried on for so many generations.
1: Yeah, just centuries of influence. <laughs> man, how does
0: he do it? Oh, man. So anyway, every misfortune that could possibly happen in the world was eventually blamed on witches. And so what ends up happening is there are a series of events that get blamed on particular witches. And then those people go to trial and it becomes this whole thing. So, for example, in 1431, Joan of Arc was burned to death for witchcraft because she led the armies to victory. And a girl couldn't possibly do that.
1: Yeah, they're like, how could you be so successful at at battle? You're like a teenage girl. You, You can't do these things. Must be a witch.
0: Right. And the irony is that she was like, wasn't her whole thing that she was like divined by God to do that too? Like she was incredibly strong in her faith.
1: Yeah, she was very religious. I can't imagine how frustrating she must have felt. Be like, I sacrificed my youth, my time. I've killed so many people. I led you to victory. I helped you, and now the people that I helped are turning on me and calling me a witch and burning
0: me because I was successful in helping them. Because I was right? Because it worked? Yeah. Thank you. That's what she just. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. That, that would have been infuriating. Yeah. And then, really important development here. Because one
1: of the things that you hopefully have been asking is, how did these people determine what a witch was? They weren't actually comparing them to the weight of ducks, although their logic wasn't far off from that. But nevertheless, they were using some kind of criteria by which to say, this is witchcraft. This is why we're going to pursue this. And of course, there were people pointing fingers. And that was obviously one thing. But there was a guide that was published in 1487 by Heinrich Kramer. And it was called the Malleus Maleficarum, which is, translates to the, the hammer of the witches. Now, because a lot of this was done in German, it was called Der Hexenhammer.
0: Yeah, it's also a really great AFI song. Oh, yeah. Great. Good. Cut there, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For spooky season, go listen to Black Sales in the Sunset. Oh yes, good album. So this book details how a witch might create an illusion that a man's penis has disappeared, among other things. So it goes into some some quite a bit of detail on on different ways to accuse and identify folks that are particularly witchy.
1: Yeah, which just sort of highlights the built-in chauvinism of the
0: ideas of that book. <laughs> yeah, that's a different issue. That's not witchy. That's just that person needs to eat less. <laughs>
1: it's like the object permanence like i can't see it around my belly it must be gone i guess that was kind of an irish
0: accent maybe i don't know i don't know what i was doing there (laughs) i don't know i mean it's appropriate given the geography of where we're talking right now so okay within this book though the details of which should be judged as guilty with or without evidence if there's any indication There are a lot of different ways they go about this, but they do provide six parts by which they identify somebody who's a witch, how they get accused, and where it goes from there. So we're gonna cover that, those portions specifically.
2: Yeah.
1: And so the as you said, there's like if there was any indication of witchcraft, but that indication was whatever. You know, that was up to the whim of the accuser. And so the first part of this of the book is that accusation equals guilt. Basically what that means is that If you were accused, as you'd said before, this is a death sentence, that means that that there would be an investigation, basically no evidence is needed in any way, and women were tortured into confessing. So, that was the first part.
0: Yeah, and the second part is anything could serve as evidence. So, uh, guilt behavior, including staring too long at someone, a cow dying within a certain time range, weighing the same as a duck, all of those things could count as evidence and be brought into the investigation.
1: The last one was a joke, just reference to... (laughs) just (laughs) for our listeners i i wasn't wasn't sure if they they you said you said it very deadpan it was which was great i was to make sure they're fine you don't actually have to weigh as much as a duck a little bit more is okay there were some (laughs) images i saw when i was doing research for this that showed them weighing women as a means of determining their guilt and i but they had actual weights on the other side so
2: Hmm.
1: i'm not sure what the what was going on with that i didn't read into the picture too much Anyway, as you said, anything was evidence, which actually leads to the third thing here, which is that they did include spectral evidence, which would be things like people reporting on their dreams or visions that they had. And if they said that they had a dream or a vision of this person engaging in witchcraft or one of these sabbats, that was counted as legitimate evidence by the Inquisition.
0: Unreal. Like, I had a nightmare and now you're dead. Yeah. I, I mean, Yeah. That's pretty much what it is. Investigation methods just all included punishment and torture. Interrogation was torture. That's pretty much what happened. Like it was just aggressively trying to pull information out of people. And ultimately, none of it was reliable given the context in which they were gathering it.
1: And as we mentioned before, another part here is that you would try to get the accused to point out another witch or another practicer of black magic, if you will in the community which is to say that they were trying to get people to name names and this is why the mafia was never accused of witchcraft because they know not to snitch <laughs> because that's where stitches come from exactly right witches get stitches <laughs>
0: So And then finally, accusing of witchcraft became a political tool. So what ends up happening was threatening to accuse a man's wife of witchcraft if he didn't vote the way that you want him to. That becomes this new tool for influencing communities and influencing folks in power and getting people into power that you want. It's like, hey, you're going to want to vote for Bob Jorgensen because if you don't, you know, you know, I've heard some witchy things come out of your house these last couple of weeks. So and now all of a sudden Bob Jorgensen is the king and it's a whole thing.
1: I mean, yeah, that basically and that that's the game that reveals the game. They understood very well that just saying like, "I hey, like you do what I want or I'm going to say that I heard that some I heard that you were a witch or something or that your wife was a witch or your daughter was a witch. And people knew that that was a death sentence. So like it's it was not like they didn't know this. They were using this as political examples. And the reverse of this is true, too, if they were to try to go after someone who was too well connected. So there's a story I found. In 1564 in Augsburg, which is this small town in South Germany, I think, judges were questioning a local healer, Anna Megler, and what had happened is that she had treated a boy. He had come to her for some wound, and she treated him, and then he died, and so they were interrogating her. They weren't torturing her yet, but they were beginning the interrogation process, and she revealed during this interrogation that she had passed on secret information to help this notable donor named Anton Fugler. And that based on her information, he had become very wealthy, very powerful, very well connected, and one of the biggest benefactors to that group of people, to that city, and the council that was interrogating her. And that he, in turn, had taught her about how to gaze into crystal balls. And essentially, when they found out this information, then the council basically abandoned their line of inquiry because of, quote-unquote, complications. Essentially saying here that, like... We don't mess with this person. She's too well connected. We might lose our money if we go after her, partially because we might have to go after Anton if that happens. And so she ended up being protected by her connections. But the vast majority of people, obviously, were not.
0: Yeah. Funny how that works, huh? All of a sudden, witchy stuff isn't so witchy anymore.
1: Yeah. Like, oh, never mind. That seems perfectly reasonable. Sorry to
0: have wasted your time. Yeah. Forget we said anything. It's fine. Tell me how to read those crystal balls though. All right. So. The rising concern about witchcraft also co-occurred with a substantial number of uprisings that challenged the establishment of the church that had resulted in thousands of lives lost. So keep in mind at this time, there's a lot of civil unrest and you start seeing that and also concerns with witchcraft kind of coming up around that time. The uprisings were largely oriented towards disrupting nobility and class hierarchies and espousing distrust of the church and the clergy. So, you know, because the church and the clergy have always been super upstanding. Because today it's changed, right? Like today it's like you can trust the church. Yeah, nothing bad has happened since then. Yeah, yeah. So therefore, when the church pushed for an inquisition to handle witches who were, quote unquote, causing harm to befall everyday peasants, then they made the hierarchy and the church authority not only valuable, but necessary and irreplaceable. They basically made it so that the church was necessary to manage these uprisings. Like they created a tool by which you could quell these uprisings without too much of an issue so basically what happens is is the church may have been using its resources to whip people into a frenzy about witches because while revolutions were trying to destroy the church institutions focusing instead on witchcraft provided an invisible common enemy that could re-establish trust and faith in the church to unite the country and provide safety
1: hmm. again do you see parallels in anything else that has happened since then where you might have someone who You have an authority organization, if you will, who is losing the support of its constituents and is drumming up some kind of enemy to reunite and reinvigor its base of let's call them supporters (laughs) so that they get all fired up and bands together again. And that makes the person who whipped them into a frenzy look like a valuable critical resource. I mean hmm. the parallels seem distressingly the parallels yeah they seem distressingly obvious from where i'm sitting but that's you know i'm making insinuations that are not clear this has happened
0: many times in history across many countries across many positions of power with many groups of people this is this is a common trope that you will find with people in power creating a common enemy so they can stay in power and
1: we actually are going to talk a bit more about some of these when we get to the end of this discussion, but I think people maybe were thinking I was insinuating one particular thing that's happened or happening, and I'm, I'm not. I'm actually, I'm saying that this happens when you have large bodies that start to lose the support of their constituents because they're essentially frauds, and people find that find that out.
0: Right. So, accusations of witchcraft extracted during torture were almost never reported or leveled at nobility or church authority. So, you never found that they were pointing at folks that were in charge. So only the lower classes, the people that were really stressing out, the people that were really not in power, the ones that were protesting their inequality, they were the ones that suffered and died at the hands of the witch-hunting Inquisition. So you saw this this power, and nobody that was in power got accused in a way that was meaningful or resulted in anything. It was always the folks who were considered lower class or the people that were the revolutionaries.
1: Now, it is possible that those kinds of accusations happened, But they never made it out into the general public because the Inquisition was by no means obligated to share the results of these inquiries. And so if the person did try and throw one of those people into the bus thinking, ha, I've got you now. I'm just going to tell everybody that the person who is my accuser is practicing witchcraft. And they'd be like, I'm not going to say that you said that. So, yeah, now what do you got? Right. He said she said. Yeah. This particular form of witch hunting and witchcraft persecution, it went on for a few centuries, but by the time we were getting to about the 1700s, people were really getting disenfranchised with this. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the Salem witchcraft trials in the United States yet, but in 1682, a French court ruled that accusing people of witchcraft was considered fraud, which is to say that if you were accusing someone of practicing witchcraft, you yourself were the fraud. And there were several other laws and things that were starting to happen around the six, the end of the 1600s, the beginning of the 1700s, that were outright banning any further persecution of someone as being a witch.
0: So in spring of 1692 in the United States, prior to being the United States, several children accused some of the adults in the community of witchcraft. And so you started to see this kind of like increase in witchcraft accusatory behavior again, and this actually sparked the beginning of the Salem Witch Trials.
1: Yeah, and... There were several reasons that this might be the case. It was complicated and there was multifaceted, but at least one of the reasons I came across in my research for this was that children would do things that were, they would be a little crazy. They would do stuff that was silly and they'd maybe be upset or overreact to things as they do because they're children and they would blame their fits on witches having cast spells on them at least some of them did or they were talked into saying that also could have happened and so as you said there were those 200 accusations but this really didn't actually last very long now whereas we had hundreds of years of this in Europe this was not even it was basically a year before the people in Salem which was a pretty small community so understandably opinions were turning against the idea of persecuting people for witchcraft and so the remaining people ended up being freed after that year. Now, it wasn't until 19 years later that the judges who had presided over those trials actually publicly apologized for that. But that's essentially the timeline for the Salem witch trials in the United States.
0: Right. For such a commonly discussed event, it was not a long term thing. Like it didn't really, it was important for understanding the, like the, you know, kind of the upcoming United States history. But it's just bizarre that it was only like one year of these things and that was it.
1: Yeah. Now, I thought it'd be fun to get some some stories about witches. I specifically looked at Hans Christian Andersen's literature and found a story called The Tinderbox. And this was one of the only ones that seemed to specifically directly mention witches. And I thought it'd just be fun to sort of go through this story if you want to real quick. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So the story begins with a soldier who is on a road for some reason, and
0: he encounters a witch who instructs him to climb a tree. Why would he do and that? And he asked Why? <laughs> (laughs) right and so the reason being is to receive money and also to retrieve a tinder box for the old witch right
1: so inside the tree there were three doors she instructed him of this and behind the first door there's gonna be dogs in each of them each door had a chest filled with different denominations of money and essentially behind the first door there was a large chest filled with bronze pence perched on the chest was a giant dog with giant eyes and the second room that was basically the same as the first room except that the chest contained silver and the dog here was even bigger with eyes the size of mill wheels and And then the third and final room, I know, right? You guessed it. It was a chest filled this time with gold, guarded by a dog who had eyes the size of a tower, apparently.
0: Hmm. Why would they describe the dog's eyes as the size of the tower? I don't know. That's a very strange shape to describe eyes. I don't know. (laughs) It's hard to wrap one's head around. Yeah, come on, Hans Christian Danderson. You need better descriptors. So for all three dogs, simply place them on a blue checkered apron provided by the witch, and they cannot harm the intruder. So what ends up happening is you put them on the apron, they can't hurt the person. So then the soldier can go in and go get those treasures. So the soldier goes into each room, collects the money from the chests, although discards all that he collects once he reaches the higher-valued items. So he collects the bronze, gets rid of it, kind of goes on and so forth, and takes the tinderbox, and the witch pulls him out because she must be very strong to get the tender box. So she pulls him out of the doors.
1: Yeah. Okay. So just to make sure we're clear here, the dogs were protecting the chests and they wouldn't hurt him as long as he placed them on this checkered cloth. So apparently they didn't mind being moved to the checkered cloth. And so he placed them there and their gigantic eyes and, yeah. as he, and gathered all that money. And so, as he said, he exited and, for some reason, after he, she pulls him out of the tree, the soldier, of course, threatens to cut off the witch's head if she doesn't tell him what the tinderbox is for. She refused to tell him, so
0: he decapitated her. I mean, as heroes do. Yeah. You know? Real stand-up guy. So, of course, he is now very wealthy and spent his money as a wealthy person would until he was all out. So, you know, moral of the story, you get rich by cutting somebody's head off.
1: Sure. And then upon opening the tinderbox, because he hadn't opened it up to this point, apparently, he discovered that it contained a candle. And then when he light that candle, it would summon the dogs that guarded the chest with the money inside the tree. Once summoned, the dogs would bring that money on command. Matter of fact, they'd bring anything on command. And he soon learned that they'd fetch anything he wanted, including people.
0: And this brings the princess to the story. So there is, of course, a princess who was rumored to be very beautiful, but they'd been locked away in the copper castle. That's a really expensive castle. Right. I would imagine, like, just a metal castle. Also really hot. Right. Like, it can't be comfortable. So anyway, the soldier sent the dogs to retrieve her. They did, and the soldier was able to strike up a weird kidnapping relationship with the princess, which was fairly common, I guess, at the time. Yeah,
1: apparently she was cool with it the king and queen were not cool with it. And they sought to prevent the princess from having a relationship with someone who was not royalty. And even though he was wealthy, he wasn't royalty. So what they did is they tied, they tried a few different things, but what ended up working is they tied a bag of buckwheat flour around the princess's neck and cut a hole in it so that when the dogs came to get her, they could follow the trail of flour that was pouring out from her neck. And apparently the princess was also like,
0: what's this strange necklace I've got on? (laughs) Oh, it's fine. It's a flower necklace. It's beautiful. (laughs) Enjoy it princess. It's so strange. So, once they discovered the soldier, they arrested him and sentenced him to death by hanging. And while he was imprisoned, he was able to send a message to boy to retrieve his tinderbox because remember, he cut the witch's head off for this tinderbox because she wouldn't tell him what was in it or what it was for.
1: Yep. And so, as a part of his final request before being hanged, he asked to smoke using his tinderbox. They granted his request and he used the candles to summon the dogs. He then instructed the dogs to kill the king and the queen and the judges. And the dogs murdered them all in some detail in this book. And then the townsfolk celebrated their hero and made him king. And he married the princess. And they all have live, lived happily ever after. I mean, what a moral, right? <laughs> I know. Like, this guy is clearly the bad. He's the antagonist of the story.
0: He's the villain. Like, that's how is he not the villain? I mean, maybe there's some detail, I don't know, somewhere about maybe the king and queen aren't great. But, like, are they, are they like, do they have murder dogs in their stead? Like, do they have them, like, at their beck and call? I don't know.
1: It, yeah, (laughs) it seems like that's not something we would generally endorse, but that's where that was anyway. All right, so let's turn back to this idea of the witch hunt. So there was just a witch in that story and ended up being a a crucial plot point because she is the one who gave him his tinderbox. Well, he killed her and took it, so (laughs) she didn't give it. It was appropriated from her. So, I have a quote here that is the definition of a witch hunt. A witch hunt is, quote, a dedicated and unjust investigation or prosecution of a person or group in which the extreme and threatening nature of the alleged crimes is used to justify suspending or ignoring the usual rules of evidence, end quote. And this is important because conveniently what has happened is this term has been used to demonize legitimate investigation. People basically realize that if you call something a witch hunt, because a witch hunt is a thing that still exists. People still do witch hunts, but they don't call them witch hunts, and they look very different. And so because we understand that a witch hunt is this unjust and not credible investigation, what you can do is you can level that as, as investigations that you don't like. So let's just say, for example, you are maybe the, the CEO of some Fortune 500 company that was doing really shady stuff, and there was a whistleblower who either threatened to or actively came out and said, this stuff is very illegal, this company should be prosecuted, they're doing stuff that's inappropriate, and the company said, oh, you guys are just trying to start some witch hunt, and basically making it look like the accuser in that case is the one who is in the wrong. That is a strategy people have learned to make it look like when they're being accused of something for which they are clearly guilty, Mm -hmm. they make it look like it's an unjust thing. And so they just sort of flipped it on its head. And I mean, I think you saw a little bit of this with the Me Too movement as well. Let me clarify that. What I mean by that is that there would be men who had done something inappropriate, and when they were accused of having done that inappropriate thing, they would say, this is just a witch hunt. These people are out to get me. And they were clearly guilty. I'm not saying that the Me Too movement was was a witch hunt. I'm saying that the people would call it a witch hunt inappropriately because they wanted to avoid being blamed by trying to discredit their accusers.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you might notice some of these tactics that we talked about have been recycled or upcycled. So in modern settings, they're not as obvious, but you might see things like McCarthyism, the satanic panic, sexual abuse revealed by facilitated communication or rapid prompting techniques, QAnon, which are all about conspiracy theories and kind of fun stuff like that. So there are a lot of different ways that you'll see these same tactics, these witch hunt types of tactics. These issues that we have talked about in this episode come up in modern times. So this is not a dead technology being used. This is a real thing that people still use and use those tactics to be able to assert power, to control power, and to prevent those folks who are possible threats from rising up and really causing a ruckus for those who are in power.
1: Yeah. And just as you said, very important here to revisit our definition in light of some of the conspiracy theories, because there are many conspiracy theories that meet every definition of witch hunt, they're dedicated unjust investigations or prosecution of a person or group in which that person is believed to have engaged in something that's so extreme and threatening that that justifies suspending or ignoring usual rules of evidence to accuse them. Yep. Okay. I want to make sure we're, we're all well aware of that.
0: For sure. For sure. So, Is there anything else to say about this, though?
1: I think, I mean, that that wraps up essentially discussing sort of the timeline of the witch trials with respect to European history. There's obviously a lot to unpack here, and there's a lot of different elements. I didn't get to this, but there's this idea of black cats associated with witches. Be nice to black cats. These are actually, oddly, for some reason, these cats are often the ones that are the most commonly targeted by people for aggression. They're the least likely to get adopted I mean, they are just cats who just happen to have one color of fur. There's really no reason to think they're any different at all. And so please be nice to these cats. They're great cats. They're just animals like all the other animals, just like anybody else. Like if you have brown hair or blonde hair or red hair, like that was just the way you're born. That's just the color of your hair. There's really no reason to be treated any differently.
0: That's it. But I wanted
1: to look into the association of black cats with, with witches specifically. And the idea with witches really was just that they had these things called familiars, which is these animals oftentimes that were sort of like servants that would do their bidding. And, I, and it seems to be largely that I don't know why black cats became so prominent, but cats were just another form of familiar. But you often saw things like birds, lizards, snakes, various other creatures that would be the quote unquote familiar of the witches that would their sort of animal servant, if you will.
0: Yeah. So be nice to animals. Yeah. All right. Any other take-home points here? I think it's important to understand how these processes work and understanding motivation behind them. That's probably the biggest takeaway is why there was some kind of motivation for these events, these horrific events to occur, because that motivation has not changed over centuries and centuries and centuries. So it's important to kind of see how it might morph and change and influence human behavior overall. And I think that's probably the biggest thing and probably the maybe the scariest thing that comes out of this is not necessarily witches because there are are still people that practice like forms of witchcraft or like different, different types of witchcraft and all that. We didn't get into like a lot of modern witchcraft or anything, but just understanding kind of why these types of things happen so that we can prevent them from continuing to happen in modern times.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. That's a very well taken point and that witches are not a thing that ever really existed. For the most part, the idea of witches have been used to prosecute groups of people. And there are obviously some contemporary witches we didn't really get into here, although that kind of looks like cultural appropriation a lot of the time that borrows, borrows is a generous term, but we'll say borrows, appropriates maybe because it's cultural appropriation from a lot of other traditions, from a lot of other cultures. And we didn't, we didn't touch on that much, but for the most part, the idea of witches and witchcraft has largely been used historically to do horrible things like torture and kill people. So leave witches alone. <laughs> Maybe leave women alone is a better way to say it, or just leave people because it was also men. Yeah, absolutely. Just to be nice to people. All right. Shall we do a quick listener mail? Let's do it. Okay. So we actually got, we got quite a bit of feedback from the series of episodes that we have done with interviewing people from different parts of the political spectrum. We did four that we released throughout the month of September and then one that was right at the beginning of October, but it was released out of order so that we could get it out there. And we got just fantastic, very kind feedback from many of our listeners. So I'm going to share one of them. I chose this just because there was a bit more content to it, but really, I mean, there was lots of great ones and, and I, I kind of had to sort of choose one at random. This one comes from Celeste. And she says, quote, Hello, I'm sharing this series with darn near everyone I know. It's been a breath of fresh air. I'm learning and feeling closer to my fellow human beings. I cannot thank you all enough for allowing civil discussions. The world needs more of that. I love all your episodes, but this series is so crucial right now. Aw. Yeah, that, that just gave me all the warm fuzzies. Thank you so much, Celeste. I appreciate the feedback. Thank you, everyone who's written in about these episodes. I was I was a little nervous going into it, but I was also really excited. And I'm, the response has been really positive, which makes me feel good about what we accomplished there or uh, tried to accomplish at least.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that was the goal. It's it's good to see that the goal is being met. Like, I think we wanted to have those honest, thorough discussions. We wanted to meet with people. We wanted to really chat. And, uh, it's nice to see that folks are seeing that that was, you know, really where we're coming from. Is like understanding each other to be a little bit more human. Yeah. All right. All right. Perfect.
1: So again, thank you for everyone for writing in. Ready to move to some recommendations? Let's do it. Recommendations. All right. So I am going to recommend the movie Invisible Man. I just saw this recently and I was really impressed. This movie was so well done in every aspect. Have you seen
0: this one yet? I haven't seen it yet. No.
1: Okay. Well, I don't want to spoil anything about it, but I just want, you know, suffice to say that I, the acting was just incredible. Elizabeth Moss was amazing in this. I think it was really well thought out, really well directed, really creative, internally consistent. I just, I really enjoyed it and I'd highly recommend people check it out. It is a scary movie. So if you're not into scary movies, then this one might be rough. There is a little bit of blood and violence. So if that's, trouble for, if that's troublesome for you, then then you might want to avoid it. But if you're like me and you like somewhat scary movies and you're okay with a little bit of violence depicted in movies, then this is a, a great one to check out.
0: I have added it to my list. And so hopefully I'll watch it sometime this month in the, in the spooky month. Awesome. So my recommendation is a, a short story and it is called I Have No Mouth, But I Must Scream. Have you heard of this? I actually feel like you maybe recommended this before, or maybe we talked about it before. I think we talked about it before. I finally got it and read it, and it is unsettling. Is the word that I would use. So it was written in the '60s, and it was written by Harlan Ellison. And it's only about 20 pages, but it is. It depicts a, a the last survivors of the human species after World War III occurs. Basically, a supercomputer takes over the world and has captured these last five and continues to torture them for eternity. And so the story is these five and kind of how they get through the situation if they get through it. You know, because the machine is like. It hates humanity so much that it only feeds them like worms and like other really gross things. And so uh, it just does, does these really horrific things to these people, but they are made to live forever inside this computer. And so it's done really well. It's incredibly effective in what it aims to do, which is to make you feel uncomfortable. But the author describes it as having a very positive outcome. Like it's got a really positive outlook, given that the whole story is about torturing humans. So I thought that was kind of a funny way. To go about this, because it doesn't end on an upbeat at all. Hmm. So anyway, it's really effective. It's done really well. I really enjoyed it. If you get a chance to read it, it's called I Have No Mouth, But I Must Scream. And it is an excellent horror story that will definitely leave you unsettled. This sounds like an episode of Black Mirror. It might be i mean it could be i'm so i would be shocked if it wasn't already
1: i'll definitely have to check that out and then we can we can chat more about it but in the meantime if you are a witch or if you have some expertise on witches that you would like to share or if you have any other comments questions or suggestions about any of the other things that we have discussed in any other any of our previous episodes or things you'd like us to talk about please reach out to us on any of the social media platforms we're also as we mentioned at the top of this we are now on reddit So you can post things there and interact with us there. you can email us at info at WWD, And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for recording with me today, Shane. Any closing thoughts or last final,
0: anything you'd like to say? Nothing on my end. That's all I've got today. I mean, I think witches are interesting. So be kind to everybody and don't call them witches.
1: Indeed. We'll see you next time for the next installment of our spooky Halloween themed episodes for the month. All right. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We're out. See ya.
2: You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD, WWD podcast on your favorite social media platforms.